The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon everyone, this is Mary Woods and I am the host of um, One Hour at a Time and I'm very pleased today to introduce our guest, William White, who is a senior research consultant at Chestnut Hill Systems. He's the past chair of the Board of Recovery Communities United, and he's a volunteer consultant to Faces and Voices of Recovery. Bill has a master's degree in addiction studies from Goddard College, and he has worked full-time in the addictions profession since 1969 as a street worker, counselor, clinical director, trainer, and researcher. Bill has authored or co-authored more than 300 articles, monographs, research reports, book chapters, and 15 books. His book, Slaying the Dragon, The History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America, received the McGovern Family Foundation Award for the Best Book on Addiction Recovery, and I will second that, and it's a must-read for anybody who's listening. Bill's sustained contributions to the treatment field in the United States have been acknowledged by awards from the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers, the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, NADAC, the Association of Addiction Professionals, the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and the Native American Wellbriety Movement. Um, welcome, Bill. It's a thank, pleasure to Thank you, Mary. It's show. good to be with you. And for all of you listening, our topic today, um, we're going to talk about the recent transformations in the culture of recovery in America. And we want to begin by talking about rec- recovery mutual aid societies. And what I've noticed, like in the last two years, I'm hearing people not talking about self-help, but about mutual help. So is that uh, is that an acknowledgement to our past, or is that just a new political correctness? <laughs> Actually, it's just it, it's a little more technically accurate when you think about it. Uh, by the time most people seek out an addiction mutual aid uh, society to support their recovery, it's sort of an acknowledgement that all efforts at self help have really failed. But and, and the idea that that this the very basis of mutual aid is the idea that people can achieve together what they have failed to achieve alone. So this self help, the idea that you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, actually uh, isn't quite accurate. It's it's much more of a, a a sustained mutual support process. So we are seeing a shift in that language. Because early on in, in the history, mutual aid societies was how um, how people how it was categorized, people coming together for their own benefit. Exactly, and there's a long history of that dating all the way back to the 1730s in Native America, and and a, a pretty large number of recovery mutual aid societies in the in the 19th century. With most of those. Um, Sort of falling by the wayside uh, during the the first two decades of the of the 20th century. So, you know, in sort of modern parlance, we tend to think of these starting with AA, but there's actually a much richer and longer history than that. 
the whole concept of being able to come together um, to help ourselves is um, I know that you've done work with the Native American um, with Native mm-hmm. American groups and with that culture, but um, it, you know it, it kind of transcends almost every um, religion or spiritual beliefs, doesn't it? It does, and, and, and the lack of such beliefs. It's kind of an exciting time right now because we've tended to think of these groups primarily in terms of AA and other 12-step groups, and part of that's quite quite legitimate. I mean, AA is is the longest surviving of the recovery mutual aid societies. It's the it's the largest. It's it's the most geographically dispersed. It's uh, had the most research conducted on it, and it's been more adapted than any other program of recovery. But the but the interesting thing is is really since the mid 1970s we've seen uh, almost an explosion of of alternatives uh, in terms of explicitly religious uh, frameworks of, of long term addiction recovery uh, groups groups like uh, Celebrate Recovery most recently Alcoholics Victorious Alcoholics for Christ. Um, um, Maladi Islami. Uh, so we're, we're seeing this notion that there are multiple pathways of recovery, and we're, we're seeing that actually manifested in these in these different spiritual and explicitly religious, and then also a growing number of secular recovery support societies, beginning going back to Secular Organization for Sobriety and Rational Recovery. Uh, we're now seeing life ring secular recovery and a number of other smart recovery and a number of other such alternatives. You know, I think it's interesting because, um, you know, medication is certainly helpful for a lot of um, illnesses and in, for mental illness and for substance use disorders. But it always seems to me that that people really don't start to feel better till they start to really regain their their sense of spirituality, their sense of connectedness to to something greater than themselves and and to kind of regain their their value system. And, and yeah, there's no medicine that will fix that. Yeah, I think it's very appropriate to think of even if you you concur with this this idea of addiction as a disease to see it as a kind of disease of disconnection from from family and extended family and neighborhood and community. And so the uh, so so recovery is very much a, a you know a process of sort of reconnection with sort of hidden resources inside the self and, and people and resources beyond the self for sure. And and these recovery mutual aid groups are kind of a framework for that kind of connection process. Um, that was an interesting statement. Do you see addiction as being something other than a disease? I think there. Uh, you know, I, it's 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 sort of a question that you can answer from the standpoint of medicine or science, and I'm very comfortable talking about that in terms of addiction as a brain disease. But what I find in my travels, working with recovery groups across multiple cultures, is that is that that you can think of disease also as a metaphor, in the sense that people use the concept of disease to sort of make sense of their experiences with alcohol and drugs that otherwise are really inexplicable. But when you go to other cultures, people use very different kinds of frameworks to sort of unfreeze that compulsive addictive behavior and initiate a recovery process and sustain that recovery. 
So, so there are a lot of different, you know, metaphors that people can use to do that. So, uh, as a, as a scientist, I'm very comfortable with disease language in terms of sort of the, the latest sort of neurobiology of addiction. But as I work with different communities, uh, I'm very comfortable with people choosing their own language and symbols to represent the, the, you know, what those experiences have been for them. Could you give us a couple examples of a different metaphor that the different cultures are using? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, when I work with historically disempowered communities, for example, um, there are parts of those communities that will conceptualize, um, uh, you know, alcohol and drugs as a kind of tool of genocide. Mm-hmm. They will see the addiction process as a process of colonization of their communities and and see addiction not in terms of medicine but in terms of of a history of oppression so they use they will use terms like resistance terms like liberation terms like empowerment as metaphors for the recovery initiation process and when i go into those communities in some parts of those communities i can i can sit for for hours with people in recovery and not hear the word disease one time as they talk about their experiences. Other places, people will use very explicit religious language to sort of describe the sort of before, you know, what happened and what their lives are like now. Whereas other people, particularly mainstream culture right now, people are very comfortable for the most part using those. And when people get get uncomfortable with them, then the good news is, is there are alternative metaphors they can use to sort of make sense of their life experience. So for our, for some of our folks in our audience who may not be familiar with other mutual aid societies, you've mentioned a few that were very religious, mm-hmm. um, and then you've mentioned some that were more secular. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about the ones, about either one of those groups. Sure. If, if we go to the um, the religious groups, they, I can tra- trace a little bit of the history. Um, there, there were 19th century uh, religious groups, but if we start with the 20th century, uh, probably the earliest one was the Calix Society, which were Catholics within the framework of AA who created a special society, primarily uh, what are sometimes called the 11-step groups. Uh, meaning that they got sober and maintained their sobriety within AA, but in terms of their long-term spiritual development as Catholics, they created this special society of recovering Catholics for mutual support. And in, in, in 1948, we had Alcoholics Victorious, which was one of the first groups to sort of adapt AA's 12 steps as an alternative. And we had uh, and the same for Alcoholics for Christ. Jacks was a was an 11-step group for Jews in recovery from alcoholism within the framework of AA. And then the, the more recent groups are the, uh, Celebrate Recovery was founded in 1991. And some of the other alternatives include uh, Free in One, Ladies Victorious, Overcomers in Christ, Lion Tamers Anonymous, uh, the Buddhist Recovery Network, the Jewish Recovery Network. So... It's almost like if you blink your eyes very long, uh, there, you, when you open them, there, there's going to be some new alternatives out there. So, and the good news is we're trying to help people sort of keep track of what those choices are. So, at Faces and Voices of Recovery, every 30 days we try to update uh, the mutual recovery mutual aid directory at that site. 
so that people have got a good sense of what, what choices are available to them out there. Is there any sense of how um, the efficacy of these mutual aid societies? No, for some. Uh, actually, the early research on AA and most of the research we have is based on AA and a little to a lesser extent, Narcotics Anonymous and Cocaine Anonymous. Um, and, the, and the early research on those was pretty bad methodologically, but that's really changed in about the last decade. We've got some exceptionally good and ever more sophisticated studies. And, and what those studies of 12-step of programs are telling us is that that participation in those groups can significantly elevate long-term recovery outcomes. Although there's uh, there's differences in terms of sort of what the active ingredients are. We know, for example, that it's not just meeting attendance. There's really a kind of intensity of participation effect. So it's sort of participation in a larger program of recovery from reading literature to to having a home group, to uh, to helping other people, there seems to be a lot of sort of discrete ingredients that have effects to contribute to long-term recovery. Now, when people ask me, well, what about the science for these alternative groups? Unfortunately, we, do, we have very little research on those. We have some early descriptive studies of those organizations, such as membership profiles and that kind of thing. But we don't have the same kind of evaluation studies that we've had for AA in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years. In the Bush administration, there was a lot of monies um, sent for charitable, um, not charitable choice, but um, help me here. For, yeah, it was really uh, the access to recovery right. was really a but White House-initiated uh, project that expanded funding for recovery support services to, to explicitly religious organizations. Right. And does that have anything to do with kind of the, this new um, kind of ex- explosion of different types of uh, religious Mutual aid well, on the religious side, I think it probably did have some effect. Uh, some, not all of those effects were positive by any means, but uh, but one of the effects was I think it did uh, provide a stimulus for some churches to launch recovery ministries and then provide some financial resources for them to provide services that involved that 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 at least the initial setup required money. And I'm thinking of things like. Uh, like recovery homes, uh, sober housing is a fairly major issue for many people in, in very late stages of, rec- of, of addiction who are seeking entrance into recovery and trying to find a recovery conducive environment. So, the, so the, that White House initiative actually freed up some of those kind of resources. Um, when, when we think about mutual aid societies, um, as you've mentioned a few times, we think about Alcoholics Anonymous as, trying, as being the most um, well-known mm-hmm. and, and most effective. But that also grew out of a spiritual movement, which was but, the Oxford group. But pardon? That also grew out of a spiritual movement, which was the Oxford group. Exactly. And, and, I, and I think the we could... As a historian, you could almost say the split from the Oxford movement was a shift from a religious framework of of, re, of recovery of alcoholics using the Oxford group to a, to a more spiritual framework of recovery that embraced people from a broad spectrum of religious faith or people without faith, for that matter. 
And we'll be right back with uh, Bill White. If you have any questions, please give us a call, and we'll be right back after this commercial. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families can recover from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Can you imagine a technology that takes human consciousness to the next level? One that reveals a new understanding of what is valuable and possible in the abundant support of life? The truth is, we already have that technology. We simply need to awaken to it and become the value it creates. For more about this, please tune in to Awakening Value, Shamanic Technologies of Consciousness and Success with host Marty Spiegelman. Awakening Value is live every Thursday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Listen for the right turn with J.J. O'Malley. It's an insider's look at America's fastest-growing motorsports series, the Grand Am Rolex Sports Car Series, presented by Crown Royal Cask Number 16. You'll hear about what happened last weekend and get a preview of what's coming up next. From the Rolex 24 at Daytona through Watkins Glen International, Mid-Ohio, Laguna Seca, right up to the championship at Homestead Miami Speedway. The Right Turn with J.J. O'Malley, broadcast live every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Power Up Motorsports Channel. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Today our guest is William White, who is a senior research consultant at Chestnut Health Systems, and he's also the author of Slaying the Dragon, The History of Addiction Treatment and Recovery in America. He also wrote Let's Go Make Some History, Chronicles of New Addiction Recovery Efficacy Movement. And our show today, we're talking about recent transformations in the culture of recovery in America. And, Bill, when we talk about the culture of recovery, what, what are we talking about? Well, it's interesting, Mary, because when I first began to write about that, I I talked about people getting very enmeshed in drug cultures and and in some ways became as addicted to the culture as they were to the drugs that were the centerpiece of those cultures. 
in that some people needed a very well-developed culture of recovery to almost fill that vacuum when they began to actually enter a recovery process. And when I described that early on, I, and this was in the late 80s and early 1990s when I was writing about this, I was talking primarily about 12-step recovery, and I referred to recovery community in the singular. And as we referenced in the first part of our show, uh, that that recovery culture has become extremely diversified right now, not only in terms of recovery mutual aid, but we're now seeing uh, whole whole new types of recovery institutions that historically are unprecedented. So um, some of our recovery community organizations, I know that's another um, within the last 10 years. That, that's a term that we're hearing. We never used to talk about recovery. No, it isn't. We talked about AA or local AA or NA yeah. groups. And, and we, we really talked about sort of this dichotomy that we had this thing called professional treatment on the one side, and on the other side we had this recovery mutual aid groups like AA and NA. And with the recovery community organization is sort of a new hybrid organization that sits in the middle between those two. Uh, it's a, it's a or- grassroots organization organized by recovering people and their families, uh, for recovering people and their families, uh, that really provide generally one of two things and sometimes both, and that's uh, recovery advocacy, which is really advocating on behalf of the needs of people seeking or in recovery or providing uh, peer-based recovery support services. These are non-clinical, non-treatment, non-medical services, and they include things like recovery uh recovery coaches and social activities and transportation and issues related to housing or employment, in some cases legal services. So it's sort of like if you think about, you know, it may take professional assistance to detoxify and produce acute medical and psychological stabilization, but then what's the person do to try to rebuild this new life in recovery? And that's where these recovery community organizations uh, often come in. And in addition to those those grassroots organizations, we're also seeing these fascinating new new things that that really are historically unprecedented. We're seeing recovery schools organized both at the high school and collegiate level, where people in recovery have special educational programs specifically designed for them that they have access to. Uh, and the evaluations of those have been exceptionally positive so far, both in terms of uh, the very high recovery rates, low relapse rates, and high levels of academic achievement in those settings. We're seeing uh, the recovery home movement continues to grow dramatically in the United States. Uh, the Oxford House network of more than 1,200 homes in 48 states, probably the best you know, example of that. We're seeing recovery industries, uh, which are uh, sort of industries organized by, often by recovering people for recovering people to, to enter the workplace and then later to, to develop a work history to then be mainstreamed into the larger workforce down the road. And, and two other things probably worthy of mention in this category is the the dramatic growth of recovery ministries and, and in some cases even recovery churches in the United States. Um, the same churches that in the mid-1980s uh, 
definitely were not welcoming to people who were seeking recovery or people with HIV. Many of those same churches right now uh, have very assertive recovery ministries, in some cases even specialized pastors who work very, you know, very specifically in terms of running recovery support services through the church. And, and finally, in terms of this new recovery uh, community institutions, I'd really have to talk about the growth of recovery support on the Internet. We're beginning to talk about this whole concept of virtual recovery of people who initiate and maintain their recovery almost exclusively based on participation in online recovery support groups. So there really is a lot happening out there in terms of sort of new recovery community development. You know, um, one of the things I think that's really um, interesting about all of this is that, um, you know, we, we always talk about it takes a village. And I think it's so important that, um, you know, if, if we look at the scientific model, um, this is a chronic illness and that pe- people may have periods of symptoms, but you need a lot of support with any chronic illness. And the idea that someone could go to 28 days to treatment and come out and be able to go to work and pay their taxes and whatever after 28 days of treatment always seemed ludicrous to me. And there's never been, at least in New Hampshire, there's never been case management that for people with addictive disorders. It's always been treatment and AA. And so this whole idea of functioning as um, as an adult with a job and, um, you know, a role in the community, for some reason, that whole part of our treatment system was never developed. Yeah, and, we, and we've, we've often thought that when a person leaves treatment, you know, in terms of what happens after treatment, that that's either a personal success or a personal failure. And there's a, there's a lot of, there's sort of a growing body of research right now that says what happens in terms of long-term recovery has as much to do with, with sort of community recovery capital as it does personal recovery capital, meaning that, that communities that are very rich with recovery support resources are going to have a higher percentage of people who initiate and sustain recovery than those communities who lack those resources. So I tend to think of it as a, as a way of sort of treating the larger community, that the community becomes our client, rather than recycling individual clients through these acute episodes of care and then sending them back into some cases drug-saturated neighborhoods that literally devour them within hours or days of their attempts to reenter those communities. I think also the whole concept of community too. I know like at Westbridge, you know, we kind of think about there's there's the the community in which we reside. There's mm-hmm. the there's the mutual self-help community, but there, then there's also the community that we create within our own organization. And how welcoming and supportive of that is right. that, you know? And, and we try really hard to kind of have a community within a community, so that there's like a, it's like a fellowship within our agency that then kind of, you know, um, mirrors the fellowship and mutual help. And that, you know, it's just um, that whole sense of belonging and being a part of something can often make the difference for some people. Yeah, it really can. And one of the things that's intriguing right now, and, and again historically without precedent is we've had recovery communities for a very long time in the sense of a sort of social network that evolves around a social or a recovery mutual aid society. 
But what's different today is when we tend to think of recovery community today, uh, we're tending to see a growing diversity. So we can, for example, have a recovery community event. And it's not an AA event or an NA or CA event, and it's not a Women for Sobriety event or a Rational Recovery or Secular Organization for Sobriety event, but it really is a recovery community event, which means you can have AA members you know, uh, marching in a community celebration event next to somebody from from Celebrate Recovery next to somebody in, within from Life Ring Secular Recovery, All, and what they're and they're not there in terms of their identities, in terms of their individual fellowships, but they're really there as people in recovery sharing that identity or families in recovery in some cases, and so that's 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 relatively new historically. How would you define recovery? Well, you know, there's actually been a lot of work uh, in the last four or five years. We're, we're, we're beginning to shift from kind of a focus on pathology from the center piece of the field and a focus on treatment and sort of knowledge based on interventions to sort of knowledge based on, on recovery or the lived solution to these problems. And as a result, uh, people are starting to, we're getting all this new recovery rhetoric and people as a result are saying, well, what exactly, do, what is this recovery thing? And the, the work to date is really coming down to three almost definitional components. And the first of those is either uh, sobriety or abstinence or in some places uh, remission, which is really that this person no longer meets DSM-4 criteria for a, dis- for a substance use disorder. And then the second definitional criteria is that we see evidence of, of, of progress towards global health. And that's physical health and emotional health and relational health and spiritual health, et cetera. And then the third one, the third definitional criteria is really citizenship. And that takes us back to where we began with this notion that, that, that addiction really is this disease that, that destroys one's connection to community. And that part of the citizenship component of recovery is sort of rebuilding that relationship with other people in the larger community. That goes beyond just that, that people, people not only stop posing threats to that community by way of injury or by way of risk-taking behaviors, but they actually begin to contribute to the health of that community positively. So those three broad elements are pr- pretty much the emerging definition of recovery these days. I was reading in the Boston Gober in the Minster uh, paper this weekend about um, an attorney in Massachusetts who's been in recovery for 30 years, and he's being considered for a judgeship. Mm-hmm. And there was a debate about whether, because of his past, that um, he, he should be given a judgeship. So there was an interesting debate between people who said, yes, of all people, he should be given a judgeship because he's been there, he's turned his life around, and he has a good grasp of the, of what he's going to be seeing before him. So it's, it's interesting how that debate still is there. You know, It is, and, and that, that kind of question could only arise in a place where we have evidence of, of addiction visible daily in our lives, invisible on, on the television screens, but recovery is practically invisible for the most part, particularly long-term stable recovery. And why is that? 
Um, I, I think it really is kind of the historical stigma we've attached to these problems that makes it very difficult and, and risky for some people in terms of their careers and their families to step forward to put a face and voice on recovery. Yeah, you know, but there is so much recovery out there, and it's so quiet. I mean, it's all around us. And we'll be right back after this commercial break to talk more with Bill White about the transformations in the culture of recovery. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to give us a call. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? Peter Tung has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. At last, a radio program dedicated to helping women look fabulous and feel fabulous naturally. You'll pick up tips on natural detox, learn about the benefits of whole foods, practice stress and relaxation techniques, and learn more about health, relationships, remedies, and self-motivation. Tune in to Feel and Look Fabulous with Arena. Broadcast live every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We promise you, it's women's time well spent. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. Um, today our guest is William White, and we're talking about the recent transformations in the culture of recovery in America. Um, I guess that bodes the question, um, is there a culture of recovery different in other countries? Oh, very much so, yeah. I, I've 
the last couple of years I've done lecture tours in the UK and in Japan and and have have emerging cultures of recovery pretty vibrant in both of those settings uh but very different in terms of their character. Uh you see uh each of those each of those countries will have sort of indigenous recovery uh mutual support structures as well as the the structures that have come from the United States, such as AA and NA in those countries. So it's pretty exciting to see just the synergy between all of those and how they've come together. Um, in our last segment, we were talking a little bit about some of the new recovery institutions, the schools and the churches. Mm-hmm. Um, what about um, advocacy, which has always been a huge part on the mental health side? There's been the National Alliance for the Mental right. Health who have really advocated to increase um, the block grant funding and research for folks with mental illness. Um, and we really have never had a very robust, frame-like period of time, similar organizations. So yeah, it, historically it's interesting because we, we really had um, the, the what became the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependency. Marty Mann founded that organization in 1944 and from, from virtually the mid '40s through about 1970, uh, you had, for the most part, recovering people and their families in this sustained advocacy campaign that really set the foundation for modern addiction treatment. And it was sort of culminated in passage of the Use Act, which set the precedent for this flow of federal money to states, to local communities, to build and operate and evaluate treatment programs. Uh, I think what, what's intriguing was when that bill passed, it's sort of like people felt that that, that task had been won. And lots of them uh, migrated towards, uh, rather than advocacy activities, they became boards of addiction treatment programs. And a lot of the, the leaders uh, became some of the early people working in addiction treatment programs. So the community education and community advocacy, policy advocacy, really fell by the wayside. And probably as a result of that, uh, probably really worsened through the 1980s into the 1990s. We saw uh, alcohol and drug problems uh, re-stigmatized. We saw them recriminalized. We saw them demedicalized with the erosion of treatment benefits through that period and the collapse of lots of, of, of particularly hospital-based addiction treatment. And so uh, I remember being interviewed by Bill Moyers in, uh, for, for his PBS special in the late 1990s, and he asked me about these cycles. And, I was, and he said, if that's true, should we see like a, a new recovery advocacy movement emerging given you know, how bad you've described things being with this re-stigmatization? And I suggested that this was in, I think, in 1998 when we did the interview, and I suggested that we probably would, uh, and probably in the not too distant future. I just my my thought was we would see it maybe within a decade or two, and what I hadn't anticipated was how quickly that would unfold. So that by 2001, um, we actually had recovery advocates from around the country coming to St. Paul, and organizing a kind of national recovery summit that really set the foundation for what became Faces and Voices of Recovery. So so we have right now a, a, a fairly well-developed recovery advocacy movement in the United States. 
with these local grassroots recovery community organizations now tied together into a national uh, network. And, and their goals are really to sort of mobilize the resources of the recovery community to expand recovery opportunities for people who are still suffering. Uh, they're involved in, in recovery-focused public and professional education, uh, advocating on laws that are are supportive of long-term recovery and eliminating obstacles to such recovery. They're providing peer-based recovery support services. And in, in, in a really unprecedented way, uh, sponsoring these very large recovery celebration events that we that is changing sort of that attitude we talked about right before break, where we talked about very difficult for people to come forward and, and put a face and voice on long-term recovery. But if you think about it, in 1976 was the first major public event where we had celebrities of note step forward and announce their long-term recovery from alcoholism. And that was sponsored by NCA at the time. And we had sports figures and congressional people and scientists and, uh, and other celebrities of note. And, and there were 52 individuals who stepped forward, and that was just an amazing kind of milestone in the history of recovery. Well, last year we had more than 50,000 people in recovery and their families and their allies marching together in recovery celebration events last September. And if somebody would have told me even 10 years ago that in my lifetime I would see 50,000 recovering people marching in cities across the United States, I would have said that's impossible, not in my lifetime. Uh, And yet I've lived long enough to witness that, which is pretty amazing. I think um, one of the things with, um, with the advocacy and I, and I don't know whether this is just part of the, the maturing of most advocacy groups is that, you know, um, I think people want, like, people in recovery want to take this and make it their own. And, um, as a, as a professional, early on in New Hampshire, there were a bunch of us who got together to help form, um, Friends of Recovery New Hampshire, which is part of Faces and Voices of Recovery. Mm-hmm. And, um, as that became more, um, cons- Driven by um, the the person in recovery, it was it became more well. You're a provider or you're a treatment person, so you don't belong here, you know. And and I don't know whether is that typical for a lot of these. It's organizations typical in terms start? of them of those organizations sort of coming of age because very quickly what happens is you get the issue of of what they refer to as authenticity of representation. Do we really have recovering people? and their families and leadership positions of this movement. And they also raised the, the concern of double agentry, people who represent themselves as people in recovery, perhaps, but also really represent very powerful financial interest, particularly in terms of the treatment institution. For example, uh, we would have in the early days of this movement, we would have treatment institutions coming and really pushing and, and us to to lobby for parity related to insurance reimbursement for treatment. But if we wanted to hold a rally on a Saturday to change zoning regulations to expand recovery homes within a local community where we saw that need is greatest, uh, it was, the treatment providers were strikingly absent on those Saturdays, but would show up when, it, when those issues impinged on their financial interests. So I think that's a natural kind of maturation and tension that occurs as those communities sort of come of age. 
it's interesting because now we're at the point where they're trying to invite us back, and it's like, okay. <laughs> yeah, and that's a very healthy, you know, that's a very yeah. healthy stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I guess if you can figure out what it is, because now it's the exact opposite. It's like, okay, what do they want from us, you know? So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of like, like the dog chasing its tail. It's, okay, now there must be something. Now they want us to sponsor things. Now they want us. Right. You know, they're not interested in, in us. They're interested in what the monies we can bring. So right. I think it's I think it's kind of a growing pains. Well, and and the dangers with some of those movements is those movements can get professionalized and they can get commercialized. They can fall in love with money the same way the treatment industry did and sort of lose their soul in that process. So, you know, can can we get corrupted recovery community organizations? Absolutely, we can. Just like we can get corrupted treatment institutions that are much more concerned about institutional profit than recovery outcomes. And we have had our share of those. We, on both sides, we've had our share of those. <laughs> so, you know, I think if, there, if, there's a, if there's a coming together where we get sort of a balance between those, those interests and as long as we kind of keep our eyes on the prize in terms of everything that comes up, say, how does this issue relate to the long-term recovery of individuals and families and, and neighborhoods and communities, then we're probably on target. But if we, if we lose that vision, we can get issues related to money and property and ego and professionalism that can take over and destroy this movement for sure. Which has been historically what has happened to a lot of different movements, right? From the um, absolutely. I think you, yeah, I think you could build a case, for example, that the recovery coach role that is coming back in terms of peer-based recovery support services, ironically, is reintroducing some things that I think got lost in the professionalization of the role of the addiction counselor. I mean, we sort of dehumanized that role as we continued to escalate the professionalization, uh, push more and more recovering people out of the field, basically told people who were in recovery that they couldn't acknowledge that status because it would be a boundary violation and, and, and a breach of professional ethics. And now I think we're kind of coming back and really sort of rehumanizing this role, and that, that's a positive trend. And we'll be right back for our final segment. If you have any questions or comments for Bill, this is your last chance. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. 
host, Simran Singh, will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio, because shift happens. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Eco Man and a Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Eco Man and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific, right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to our final segment with William White, and we're talking about the recent transformations in the culture of recovery in America. So when we're talking about the, um, the huge growth of mutual aid societies, the recovery community organizations, and the new recovery um, institutions, what does this all mean for our future, Bill? Well, I think I think treatment I think is is going to be going through some amazing transformations here. In fact, already is in that process in many places. And I think the recovery advocacy movement and these recovery community organizations, I think they came to the treatment field and I think they told us that this thing we call treatment had got disconnected from this larger and more enduring process of addiction recovery. And I think they told many of us that we'd become disconnected from grassroots communities out of which we were born. And we needed to get out of our fancy institutions and get back into the life of those communities. And I think those were very poignant criticisms and very apt criticisms. So, so in that process, um, I, I think there, it, it was the same time that as a treatment system, I think we were becoming aware that we were recycling a growing number of people with very severe, very complex problems through repeated episodes of brief and often very expensive stabilization with no measurable recovery outcomes coming out of that and, and reaching points where over half of our clients coming in had had multiple, had prior treatment, many of them having multiple prior treatment episodes and we were just constantly re- recycling them. And I think the epiphany we got was that we've called addiction a chronic disorder for a couple hundred years, but in reality we've really treated it like a broken arm or a bacterial infection with these very short episodes of care that have a beginning, middle, and an end, 
and we hug people and give them a, a chip at the end and and tell them to go have a great life and by the way get to some meetings and get a sponsor is kind of an afterthought and then we're amazed when these people we keep recycling so many of these people through treatment so i think the trend right now is 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 challenges to us to really extend this acute care model to a model of sustained recovery management that's much more analogous to how we treat other chronic disorders like diabetes, hypertension, or asthma, as an example. So, so with that, it means that uh, I think treatment programs are going to be transforming themselves pretty dramatically in terms of the clinical designs of those programs. They're going to be trying to reach people earlier. Uh, they're going to be trying to dramatically enhance access and retention. Uh, we're going to be challenged to stop throwing people out of treatment for confirming their diagnosis. Uh, we're going to be challenged to improve the quality of, of primary treatment by dramatically expanding the service menu. And, and I think particularly important is, you know, primary treatment, that high-intensity treatment we think of, uh, we, we will continue to do that stabilization, but we're going to be involved for much, much longer periods of time with people's lives in terms of ongoing post-treatment recovery checkups, assertive linkage to communities of recovery, early reintervention uh, when needed, um, and, and working with communities to develop really a world where people can recover in with these kind of resources we talked about earlier in terms of education, employment, housing, uh, church, et cetera. So, so it's going to be an exciting time to, to work in addiction treatment here in the next decade. It certainly is going to be a big shift for a lot of people. It is. For those of us who've been in this field for a long time, it's going to force us to really rethink some of our assumptions and really re- rethink and reconstruct the very nature of the helping relationship from this sort of expert authoritarian model, um, which was part of our professionalization that we modeled on psychiatrists, psychologists, and social workers, and really develop a longer-term sort of recovery partnership. And so it's going it's, it's to be an interesting time trying to construct and define what that partnership's going to look like long-term. And, you know, I think one of the things in my travels that I see the most challenging for people is the whole concept of treating someone when they're actively using and, um, you know, I still hear, well, we throw people out or, you know, if somebody's using and they're not appropriate for our program, and it's like, well... Yeah, it's very strange because when you step back and think about it, we're the only sector of health care in which we throw people out of care for exhibiting the symptom of the disorder for which they were just admitted for treatment. Right. Even though we can't, we, we classify that behavior as a disease over which people have lost volitional control. So, you know, there's a, there's a point at which this is going to be rather painful for us. And, and by the way, does that mean that, that somebody's behavior can be so out of control or their condition so unstable that they're inappropriate for a level of care? Of course not. They may need a, a level of care. Just like if I'm in a med-surge unit and have a heart attack, they're going to transfer me to ICU to stabilize me before I would return to a med-surge bed. Well, we may have the same thing in addiction treatment, but but we're going to be challenged to not sever that relationship, and I think that's very appropriate. 
you know, it, it, one of the nice things about um, what we've been able to do at Westbridge is we've been able to kind of utilize the stages of change model and really look at people where they're at and so that if somebody is still using and they really think there's more benefit to using than there is to being sober, we don't consider that's how we treat them. We don't say they're relapsing. We don't put a label on them. We just try to say there's more benefit to their using right now than there is for them to being sober. So how can we help tip the scale Exactly. What kind of interventions can we do to help people understand that maybe it's in their best interest not to use and and to try to work with them and and work with them in, in creatively in different settings and um, yeah we talk that, about pre-recovery priming right and, and uh, is this sort of very early engagement stage and I'm beginning to write about this concept of of, re- of recovery uh, and contagion. Uh, the idea of putting people in environments that are so dynamic and so recovery-saturated that there's a tendency for people to sort of catch recovery in spite of themselves. Right, right. And, and this whole idea that when, when you talk, when I talk to other colleagues about this, they kind of say, oh, you do harm reduction? And it's like, well, I guess we're just treating people who are ill in the way that we can get their attention and help them to get better. And but, you know, one of the things that's going on right now, and I'm very much a part of that, is challenging harm reduction to redesign itself within a framework of recovery orientation so that the focus is not just on the elimination of social harm. It really is about the enhancement of personal and family recovery. Right, right. So we try really hard here to to work with folks and and to focus on what they're doing well and, um, you know, and to try to really sit down with somebody and say, you know, know, you've been using and you've not been taking your meds for a while now. How's this working for you? You know, your Mm -hmm. friends are all graduating from college and your family's ready to cut you out of the will and, um, you know, everybody's just ready to jump all over you. Is, is, Is this working for you? Is this where you want to be at this point in your life? And, yeah, I think that I think in, the, in in that process you're describing, we're beginning to figure out that not everybody enters recovery through the vehicle of of a crisis and pain. That that many people enter recovery through a process of hope as opposed to a process of pain. It's not about hitting bottom sometimes as much as it is being able to see the top and experience some kind of hope for the future. And to have somebody who believes in you enough to say, you know, you deserve a better life and, and you can do this. Absolutely. So um, I really think that that I, I really hope that your vision for the future is what it's really going to be because um, that's very hopeful. Good. Thanks, Mary. This has been fun. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, and you're welcome anytime. And okay. um, hopefully, we'll see you in the warm state of Florida. So. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right. Have a good week. Bye bye. And have a wonderful Fourth of July. Uh huh. You too. Okay. Bye bye. you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.